Hey, good morning, church. We're going to be in John chapter 15 today, going through one of my favorite passages. Uh, but I have a couple things to say that have nothing to do with the sermon, uh, nothing to do with the passage that we're studying. Um, I want to read you a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2 that I share roughly uh, every four years. Um, but now is the time, this is the Sunday, to, to remind the church something that we are called to do. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now you're watching this on Sunday. I'm filming this on Wednesday, um, and the inauguration of our new president just happened, and this is your reminder. Uh, hopefully you'll be reminded of this more than just every four years, uh, but now you have a responsibility, a calling, that the Lord has placed on you as one of His children, as a member of the church, to pray for those in authority for this purpose, that, that we, that, that the church, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Um, so that's your first uh, thing that has nothing to do with John chapter 15, uh, that I'm just reminding you to pray for those in authority, pray for our leaders, pray for our president, um, knowing that, that, um, that it is God's will for all to be saved, and it's our will and his will that we would be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention that also doesn't have to do with John chapter 15 is uh, just a reminder to you that we do have uh, our midweek Bible studies on Wednesday nights, on Thursday mornings, and I'd encourage uh, any of you uh, that are able to, to come. Wednesdays at 6.30, we eat dinner together. Thursday mornings at 10, um, we don't have dinner together. And we're going through the book of, of 1 Kings, and that's been a really cool thing. Uh, so now, um, John chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 1. I've got to find it here. I'm close. John chapter 15, we'll read through verse 8. This is a really beautiful passage. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Jesus, we want to be your disciples. We want to abide in you. We want to be so connected to you that, that we recognize you as the source of our life, of all our thoughts, of all our, um, all our words. We want to be rooted and grounded in love and the God of love. We pray, Jesus, that your word would dwell in us richly and that you would bring about 
the truths of this passage to reality in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, the, the setting here, uh, they're done with dinner. Jesus is, is telling the disciples, arise, let us go from here. That's at the end of chapter 14. And so they're, they're starting to get up and, and getting ready to leave the upper room, but they haven't yet. And now Jesus is going to tell them a story, uh, um, really a, a word picture. And, um, and remember in, in chapter 14, he's been speaking to a troubled people. He's been speaking to disciples that are uneasy, that they're anxious and if you go back to 14 verse 1, he, he said, believe in me. He gives them the, the antidote, um, the medicine for their anxiety. He says, you're troubled, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. And then in verse 9, nine when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, he says, look to me. Um, I'm sorry, that was in uh, verse, that's not 9, is it? Well, yeah, it is. And back in verse 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We know that passage. You know, and if he's the way, if, he, if he's the life, then it's live in me, believe in me, the truth. Um, come to me, come through me, the way. Um, and then in, in uh, verse 23, he talks about if anyone loves me, they're saying, believe in me, come to me, look to me, love me. And then now in chapter 15, verse 1, um, well, in, in uh, later on actually, verse 4, he says, abide in me. And that's the substance of this passage. That's the point of chapter 15. Abide in me. Now the application for all of this is right here at the front end. Usually, a lot of times the application, you, know, you wait till the end and maybe we'll have some then too, but it's, it's right there at the front of this. Christ says, abide in me. And I'm encouraging you, abide in Christ. Live in Christ. As Paul says to um, to the, the pagans on, on the Areopagus, on the Mars Hill, you know, in him we live and move and have our being. If that's true for any created person, it's so much, it ought to be so much more true for the Christian. Live in such a way that you, you believe that it's in him that we live and move and have our being. Make your home with him. Abide in Christ. Don't allow thoughts. Take every thought captive. The thoughts that aren't at home in Christ, that don't have their source in Christ. Don't do things that you wouldn't do in his home. He's making his home with you. That's what he's, he's promised back in 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Um, that's, that's what leads us into this topic on abiding, about living and dwelling with God. You know, at Christmas time we sing Emmanuel. Come, O come, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And this ministry of God dwelling with man is what Jesus is talking about in chapter 14 and chapter 15. And, and the way he explains this, what does it look like for man and God to dwell together? What does it look like for man and God to be at peace with each other? Well, it looks a little bit like a vine and branches. So in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So Jesus tells parables, he tells stories, he uses word pictures. They're pretty used to that by now, probably. But the emphasis here that you need to see is on the word true. He doesn't say, I am the vine, and he'll say that in verse 5. But he says, I am the true vine. I'm the real, actual vine. Now that's not, he's not saying he is actually a vine, but in the, uh, the metaphor of vines and vineyards and, 
and uh, vine dressers. He is the true vine. Now, why would he say that? Jesus is the vine, the vine not a vine, not just any vine, but the true vine. Um, because this idea of God having a vineyard, this idea of God being a vine dresser, um, the idea of God caring for a plant that is his, this is well established in the Hebrew imagination. In fact, uh, Israel throughout the Old Testament is seen as the vine. And so, when, if Jesus were to say, talk about a vine, it would have been easy for the disciples to think of Israel, as it's talked about in Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, and I'll read these passages for you. But Jesus is saying, what Israel was supposed to be, I am in actuality. And he does, we see this throughout his ministry. Even, even the terms such as uh, son of God, um, Israel is God's son. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Well, that was Israel. And then Matthew, skillfully, and, and um, in, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies that to Christ. Christ fulfills Israel. Now, in, in Psalm 80, verse 8, I'll read this to you. Psalm 80, verse 8 says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take root, and it filled the land. Now, Psalm 80, verse 8 is, is clearly about Israel. The, the Hebrews that were called out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, were brought into the land of Canaan and caused to be established there. This, this is uh, something that shows up in the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it's a beautiful hymn, really. It's a song in Isaiah 5. You can read the whole thing. I'll just read ver two verses for you this time. It says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And then you read on in that passage and you see that it's, it's, a, it's a parable that was sung to Israel about how they had failed, about how God had been faithful to them as a vine dresser, as a good gardener, but they, as the plant, refused to be tended and did not bear good fruit. Um, Jesus is the true vine, not the vine that brought wild grapes, but he is the one that is perfectly cared for by the Father, and he is the one that does not disappoint in terms of fruit and righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, the same kind of principle here. Uh, Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I have planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality, how then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? And this is to Israel again. Israel is seen as the vine. Now, even in Matthew 21, uh, this whole paragraph, 33 through 40, 44, um, Israel is the vineyard. Jesus says there was a, a man who planted a vineyard and he went away. And he put people in charge of the vineyard, the leaders of Israel. Um, but they wanted to take it over from the owner, God. And even though God sent his son... They killed the son so that they could keep the vineyard. And in that whole metaphor, it's very clear who God is, who the son of God is, who the wicked rulers are. But the setting is a vineyard because Israel was comfortable with that, this idea of being compared to the vineyard. But Jesus is telling the disciples now, the true vine, God's true child, God's true chosen one, his beloved, that's me. I am the true Vine. Jesus is the true vine. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. 
the seed of Abraham. Well, who's that? Well, is it Israel? Well, yes. But then Paul skillfully says in Galatians, it's not seeds, it's seed, it's one, and that's Christ. All the promises that Israel fulfilled in part are perfectly seen in Christ. Now, in the upper room, of course, this isn't as clear in John, but you read the Synoptic Gospels and you see this. In the upper room, part of the purpose of that, that meeting was to establish a new covenant. The old covenant was God and Israel. The new covenant is really God and Jesus and us in Jesus. Jesus is what Israel could never be. He kept the law. And he became the light to the nations. Now he says, I'm the true vine. I am Israel fulfilled. Okay? My father, God the Father, is the vine dresser. Now this is consistent with the verses that I just read. In, in Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah 2 and Psalm 80, God is the, the gardener. God is the planter. He's the vine dresser. He's a gardener. What, what does God, the gardener, love most in his garden? His son. Who does God love most? Who is his favorite? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus, his son, is his favorite. The blessings that we receive are in association with Christ. Every blessing is in Christ. Now, this is kind of interesting because a lot of what a gardener does, he, he prunes branches, and we're going to see that, okay? And he, and he cuts off the, the dead stuff and everything like that. But a lot of what a gardener does with their plant is they deal with the dirt. They deal with the soil, right? Um, you know, they, if you have a, a grapevine or an apple tree or something and you want good fruit, you're not going out there and like shining the apples on the tree or polishing grapes or something. If you want good fruit, you have to have a good root. And this whole passage, the, the, the punch of it is, the, the, the application is, abide in Christ. You can do nothing apart from him. Stay with him. All your fruitfulness will be due to your abiding in him. Now, we, we often seek fruitfulness, even with the best of intentions, and we want blessings. And we say, God, give me this thing, or let me have this gifting, or let me be successful in this way. And we're, we're looking for the fruit. We're a branch looking for the fruit. The fruit is tied to the root. Your fruitfulness depends on how connected you are to the vine, because the blessings that the gardener is giving to the plant, he's giving at a root level. He's blessing his son. He's blessing the vine. And the, the branches that abide in the vine just naturally produce fruit as they abide in the vine. The vine dresser, God the Father, blesses most his son, Christ. What is God most interested in today? Glorifying Christ, exalting the name of Christ, lifting high the name of Jesus. How is Christ most glorified? Well, by our abiding in him, by our bearing fruit. It says in verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The father tends to the vine. And, and just as, as gardeners do, they, they tend to the soil, they tend to the root, because that's what everything depends on, but they also prune the branches. Uh, and, and the Father blesses his Son by attending to his disciples, the false disciples, and the fruit-bearing disciples. Mixing metaphors here. Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit... He prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
um, it's interesting that the, the vine dresser removes the fruitless branches. Now this has confused a lot of people. Um, this has caused a lot of people some, some trouble because you read this and you want to say like, is, is he, is he firing some of the disciples? Is he getting rid of those who are truly saved? Is this a passage that, that is supposed to scare you into thinking that you can lose your salvation? Who are these people? Are they believers? Are, are the branches believers? Um, you have to take a look at the other parables of Jesus and, and see if, uh, if you can see a, a parallel with all of these things. He has a lot of farming metaphors, right? And a lot of other agrarian parables. Um, you have the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Some seed falls on good soil and some does not. And the seed that is that falls on, you know, the wayside, for example, is consumed by the birds, which Jesus explains are demons, okay? Those aren't Christians. Um, the, uh, the seed that does not fall on good soil does not produce fruit, and fruitfulness is the, the identifying marker of the believer. So you have some seed that falls, it's all seed, it's all the same seed, um, but some falls on hard ground, rocky soil, some falls on good ground, and that determines really the, the nature of the plant. Now you have um, other parables. You have uh, the rest of Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 38 and 40, I'll read you this. He says, The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. It's this parable of the wheat and the tares. There's good plants and weeds. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, what's that talking about? It's talking about false converts, very clearly. It's talking about plants that have no, no identity in, in Christ, if, if you, you can follow the, the metaphor. Um, there's false converts, and false converts are real. And the scripture says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. That's a real thing. People will be surprised when they hear, I never knew you, depart from me. They will be surprised. But don't make the mistake also that in thinking that your salvation is somehow secured by a loose rope and that you're on precarious ground if Christ has saved you. Now again, there's other parables about um, true and false converts, and I think they tie into John 15 very well. In the same chapter in Matthew, Matthew 13, verse 47, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Okay. So Jesus tells many, many parables, um, usually set in the, in the field or, or out in, in, the, in the best fishing spots, about true and false converts. And now he is saying that he is the vine, and there's branches in him that do not bear fruit that the Father takes away. Are these believers? I, I would say no. And I, I don't think that the purpose of this passage is to make people feel insecure do not think that God's grip is weak. Now, we, we have to compare this with the other things that Jesus says about those who are his also. You have John, in, in the same gospel we're studying, John chapter 6, verse 37 and 39, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
I don't think he's talking about fruitless branches there. Um, John chapter 10, verse 26 says, But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He says, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So how are there branches in him that are lifted away? And, and you, you glance down to verse 6, it says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, this is the same kind of language used to describe the false converts or the tares that the devil plants in the wheat field. Okay? But how can those branches be in him and also not in him, apparently? Um, the same way the tares are in the wheat field, the same way um, in the that we see the fish of both kinds in the same net, the same way that the seed of the word was in the same, uh, same place before it got cast onto different soils. In John chapter 2, verse 23, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Okay, so they're a kind of believers, right? But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And the implication there is, what is in man is not good stuff. So there were believers that weren't really believers. And that becomes very clear as you read through John and see people draw away when Jesus becomes more controversial. John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So there are disciples that aren't really disciples. I mean, verse 8 of John 15 says, bear fruit, so you will be my disciples. So it says, disciples, if defined by this metric, are not the same as those disciples that leave. And, and then, of course, maybe the clearest example that we should really consider when we're talking about John 15 is the guy that just walked out of the room. The guy who left the upper room when Jesus said, go, do what you do, what you do, do quickly. There's Judas. Now, is Judas... Uh, wheat? Was Judas good soil? Was Judas a son? Was Judas in his flock? Jesus says that Judas was a devil. No, in, in John 15, verse 6 is key. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. That's what it takes to be removed. If you're not abiding in Christ, you're not in Christ. In Christ is how it, how, um, Christianity, how our faith is described, how the new birth is described, continuing on. You exist in Christ. Those who are not in Christ will be gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. Now, it's possible that this passage, shared without Judas in the room, is said in part as an explanation, not just what believers in general will experience, but what the disciples, the eleven plus one, are experiencing. Judas is a branch that will be lifted away. Judas has been in the same net, but he's a bad fish. Judas bears no fruit, and he is removed. The eleven are going to undergo a testing, a pruning, um, but they won't be cast out. And Jesus is, di is distinguishing between the lifting up and out and to be burned, the condemnation, and the pruning, which hurts and is painful and, and feels like something you don't want to go through, but is actually for your benefit. He's drawing a line there. We're not able, always able to distinguish those things. We just say, all bad things are bad. And Jesus says, no, pruning is good. 
So he's drawing this line because there is a disciple, a branch, who's been lifted away. But he's saying that the branches that bear fruit, meaning the disciples, those ones he prunes, that you might bear more fruit. Alright, so let's talk about pruning. The branches that bear fruit, meaning the ones that are abiding in the vine. Okay, the ones that don't bear fruit, don't bear fruit because they're not abiding in the vine. They're dead branches. But the ones that bear fruit still get the knife, the clippers, the shears. He prunes believers. Now, this is for you. This is a promise of God for you. You don't have to claim it. It's true either way. That's not how promises work. He prunes. And the, the Greek uh, word for this is, is katharai, and it, it's translated sometimes as cleans. Uh, the same uh, root word, katharo, is actually used in, in Hebrews uh, 10.22 as pure water, washing with pure water in the word. Um, sorry, different passage, uh, but it is pure water, not water in the word. I was thinking of Ephesians 6 there. Um, but Hebrews 10.22, it's uh, katharo is, is pure. In Revelation 21, verse 18, when uh, you see something as clear as glass, it's the same root for clear. Uh, you know, it, it, it's clarity. Hebrews chapter 9, 13, uh, the word purification. Hebrews 10, 2, it's cleansed of sin, the purity, the cleansing. It's all the same root that's used here for prunes. Um, now, we know in the context that it is talking about pruning. It's talking about cutting away branches because when you clean up a tree, that's how you clean up the tree. You cut away the dead branches. It's not talking about getting like a rag and polishing the branches or anything. But, but this, is, this is what pruning is for a tree and it's what cleansing is for the believer. It's cutting away bad things. He chastens every son whom he receives. And it's cutting away good things that aren't the best thing. Now, cleaning up the, uh, the, the vine, you know, you cut away the dead stuff, you know, the suckers coming out of the root and all that stuff, but that's not only pruning. Pruning cuts the good stuff too. Pruning a vine can be cutting back fruit-bearing vines, things that are good, things that, uh, that you're rather attached to. Now, an ineffective, disappointing vine, the way... Uh, and the, the vines are described in, in Jeremiah 2 and Isaiah 5. Even though they were tended, they acted like a wild vine. What's the difference between a wild vine and a, and a, a tended vine? The ineffective, disappointed vine is one that is left to itself. A wild vine. Left to itself, a vine will spend vast amounts of energy on unfruitful growth. I'm going to say that again. Left to itself, a vine in the wilderness, you know, will spend vast amounts of energy on unfruitful growth. God is saving you from unfruitful growth by attending to you in somewhat painful ways and cleaning his, his vineyard by cutting away the bad things out of your life and some of the good things too. Question, does pruning hurt? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes it does. But it's fruitful. The purpose is for more fruit. God, the vine dresser, the Father, is intentional about cleansing your life by removing unfruitful branches. Now, in verse 3, he says, You are already clean. 
because of the word which I have spoken to you. That word for clean is, is clearly, is directly connected in the Greek to the word for prunes, okay? It's katharoi this time. Prunes is kathare, the root is katharo, cleans is katharoi. You can see the word catharsis in there, cathartic. It's that purging, okay, that therapeutic purging. That's the kind of cleaning we're talking about. The pruning had already begun for the eleven. He says, you're already clean. The word pruned them. And we talk about pruning as kind of a painful process, a clearing away of things that you're rather attached to. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, The word of God is profitable for, among other things, reproof and correction, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. What's that? That's fruitfulness. The good works are fruitfulness. And the word of God is profitable for correcting you. For correcting you, for cleansing out the bad things in your life so that you can be fruitful, equipped for every good work. Now, Jesus says that they're already clean. And the idea of pruning and cleaning is, is once and for all. And it's also ongoing. Salvation, justification, is a pruning cleansing. <laughs> and sanctification is ongoing. John 15 includes both. But neither is possible without total dependence on Christ. Your justification has come about because you abide in Christ. Your sanctification, your ongoing transformation into the image of Christ is due, is, is dependent on your abiding in Christ. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, neither unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now the pruning is essential for fruit bearing, but it's not what actually causes fruit to grow. Pruning isn't the most important ingredient for fruit bearing. Abiding in the vine is. And the he says, abide in me and I in you. He describes this, this mutual dwelling again. You think of Song of Solomon, verse six, or chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Jesus has promised his presence. He's promised this, um, this unity between believers and their God. In chapter 14, verse 19, he said, because I live, you live also. In chapter 14, verse 23, which we read already, he says, If anyone loves me and keeps my word, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We'll dwell with him. We'll abide with him. So he's saying, I want you to abide in me, but I'm also telling you that I'm abiding in you. And, and uh, there's another promise here. There's a promise of fruitfulness. This is, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. If you don't abide in me, it's not just that you won't bear fruit. You can't do anything. You won't do anything unless you abide in me. There was the promise of his presence. There was the promise of his uh, making his home with you. And, and then there's the promise of fruitfulness. Your life, when rooted in Christ, will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. This is how you'll be his disciple. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Why? Because you'll be asking according to the will of God. Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be 
my disciples. What is the fruit? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit may come to your mind. Um, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Uh, souls are called a harvest. God is called the Lord of the harvest, and we are to pray that he would send laborers into the harvest of souls. Uh, but essentially, fruit, uh, this idea of fruitfulness, encompasses kind of a, a broad spectrum of the Christian life. Fruit is the works of obedience. Your fruitfulness is what you do that you have been told to do by your master. Now, I think you know a fruitful life when you see it. You know the saint who has lived well um, and before the face of God. They are image bearers of Christ, and you can see it. It's shining clearly. You know fruitfulness when you see it. Now, reading missionary biographies is, is a great thing. I think it's something that every believer should do. It's interesting, and it's important, um, partly because of their their accomplishments, or really God's accomplishments through them. Um, but invariably, the, the lives, the biographies of, of these saints are, are characterized not just by, by busyness, um, or by what they do with their hands, or how many sermons they preach, or how many books they uh, write or read, or how far they travel, but their, their lives are invariably characterized by this abiding in the presence of God. Um, Hudson Taylor, I'm sure you, you know a little bit about, about he's the founder of the China Inland Missions. Um, he really kind of, uh, I guess, revolutionized um, how... how uh, cross-cultural missions works in the late 19th and, and, and into the 20th century. Um, but he, he was responsible in the mid-19th century for leading hundreds of missionaries into China's interior for the first time. And his son uh, wrote this about him in 1932. Um, he said, Here is a man bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters any one of which may contain news of death, of lack of funds, of riots, or serious trouble. Yet all were opened, read, and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his power for calm. Dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources. And this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. Yet he was delightedly free and natural. I can find no words to describe it save the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time, and God in him. It was that true abiding of John 15. This is what you have been called to. It's a good place. It's a good thing that you have been called to. You've been called to abide in the vine and receive all the care of a good vine dresser who tends to his son, who gives his son everything. And then we realize we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places because they're in Christ. We realize that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. So I would appeal to you um, in the name of Christ, be united with Christ in his life, in his works, in his peace, in his joy. This is what I'm encouraging. I am encouraging you in. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that by your Spirit these things would be true. Uh, we thank you for your promise that you would abide in us. We now, God, um, are abiding in you. Let us dwell richly. Establish us, Lord, in you. Let us not go a moment 
throughout our days without being mindful of you, without submitting to your will, without rejoicing in, in your good works for us. We pray that we would be a church characterized by this abiding, by this being in God. Lord, we, we lean in to your, um, your loving arms, knowing that, that you prune well and with wisdom. We pray that we would be fruitful, not just so that we can uh, have it on our resume somehow or feel good about our, our time spent here on earth, but we pray that we would be fruitful so that you can be glorified. Be glorified in us, God. Amen.